You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. This is the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Vortex Optics. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. I'm your host, Dan Johnson. The reason they call it the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast is because I only have nine fingers. I've been doing this for a long time. It still hasn't grown back. So, and, and I haven't lost any more fingers. So we're going to stick with Nine Finger Chronicles until I have another major accident or uh, this finger grows back. But we have another banger episode today. Today, we are going to be talking with the other half of Drury Outdoors, Terry Drury. Now, right off the bat, I'm going to tell you this. I've done over 700 episodes in, you know, in the, the, the space uh, I think it's 2014 or 15 is when I started this. I've done over 700 episodes, 700 interviews with hundreds of different people across the nation. And there's a, a very small list of people who really uh, catch my attention and make the interviewing process really fun and enjoyable and make me say, hey, uh, I, I, this is why I do this. This is why I do this. And this particular episode, I'm going to put it in the top 20 that I've I've ever done. So it's a real good one. I, I really enjoyed this. I really listened to uh, what uh, Terry had to say. And as you'll hear here, we're not talking about intense whitetail strategy. You know, we're talking about the man behind the Drury Outdoors, right? We're talking about uh, Terry himself. We talk about family. We talk about kids, grandkids. We talk about the early days of Drury Outdoors and how him and his brothers used to have, uh, about him and Mark, 
how they used to have some pretty heated arguments in the stand when things didn't go as planned. Uh, so, it, I mean, it is a fun episode. It's an interesting episode, and I know that you guys are definitely going to uh, enjoy it. It's uh, it's almost like a biography of a podcast, right? And I really like talking. Don't get me wrong. I like the analytic, uh, the analytical talk. I like the strategy talk. But I also feel like there is a time when you really need to know the people behind certain things or movements. And the Drury Brothers, man, they've been around for a very long time. And I think on just the outside looking in, people only see a shell of what is in front of them. I mean, that's that's with social media. That's with television. That's with, I mean, even podcasts. You get to hear and see only the shell of who a person really is. So my goal with this episode was to really get in and find out who Terry Drury really is. And, and uh, I, think I, I think I accomplished that, man. So uh, I know you guys are going to enjoy this episode. Now, before we get into today's episode, we got to do commercials, right? That's how all of this is paid for. So if you're looking for a saddle, go check out Tethered right? Uh, the best part about tethered is the people behind the product, right? Don't get me wrong. The product's superior, right? The, the platforms they make, the saddles, they make the climbing sticks, they make all the accessories that they make. It makes for a great product line, but the people behind the product, just like all of the companies that I work with is what makes the product itself superior and so a huge shout out to the people at tethered for getting this far huge shout out to them putting out content and huge shout out to making the customer the end user a priority Uh, some companies don't do that and so uh, if you want to go if you're looking for a saddle and you're looking for a new tool to approach the hunting season go check out tethered Second, wasp archery, the slayer. I, I call that, <laughs> I call, like, I get fired up. I'm looking, where's it at? Right here. I got an old broadhead that I, I shot my deer with last year. It's sitting right here. And I, I'm i looking at it. It's full of blood and hair and stuff still kind of in the uh, in the crevices here. And I just, it just, it's, it just destroys whatever it hits. So I'm a huge fan of Wasp, the design of their jackhammers, the design of their Boss Four Blades and all the other uh, uh, heads that they make. Major, a majority of their heads are made in America. The, the material that they use is second to none. And you can, you can find that out by talking to the people that work there. Again, a company that wants to see you be successful. And when you're successful, that means they have repeat customers because their products bring their customers confidence and that's why i've used it throughout you know throughout all the years so wasparchery.com 20 percent discount nfc20 for 20 percent off hunt stand again man uh the people behind the company and i haven't mentioned this with hunt stand i mean they're hardcore these guys are serious hunters and what they want to do is bring a sense of uh being comfortable with your surroundings to you and that is by having one of the most popular hunting apps on the market and 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 at only thirty dollars i'm telling you right now it's the most affordable but is also has the highest amount of functionality right up updated satellite imagery um the content that comes behind the product on how to use the product just like the you know tether does and wasp does i'm telling you right now hunt stand is second to none right and just the functionality so if you want to find out more information about hunt stand go 
to huntstand.com, read up on all the functionality. I'm telling you, it's a winner. Uh, discount SN20, SN20 for 20% off. And then lastly, my homeboys over at Vortex, huge shout out to Vortex. Uh, man, again, I'm just beating a dead horse here. Great people, great products. If you're looking for a pair of binoculars, a spotting scope, a range finder, a rifle scope, a red dot, these guys have it right if you want to be educated on how to use their products these guys have it vortexoptics.com if you have a question about optics or any other hunting related question call their customer service they will help you that's how serious they are even if it doesn't pertain to their product line they will help you and then they have their vip warranty and what's that mean that means you break it damage it whether it was on purpose, whether let's say you missed the buck of your lifetime and you spiked it on the ground, it shattered, you pick up all the pieces, put it in a box, send it in, they will replace it for free and then, or not replace it, they will fix it for free. If they can't fix it, they will replace it at no charge to you and that's their VIP warranty. So vortexoptics.com. All right, so those are the commercials. Huge shout out to the brands that we work with. If you haven't had the opportunity to go and leave a review on Apple Podcast, iTunes, uh, Spotify, wherever you download your podcast, please go give me a five-star review. That helps get the word out about the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. And, uh, you know, I could always use more of that. So huge shout out to all of you for taking time out of your day to listen. Let's just get into today's episode with Terry Drury. Three, two, one. All right, on the phone with me today, Mr. Terry Drury. Terry, how we doing, man? We're doing great. How are you? I'm doing good, man. I am downstairs in my garage right now. I have a coffee table, and on this coffee table is every trail camera that I own and piles of SD cards and batteries galore. And I am getting ready to go do a big push, actually, Thursday of this week to go get my all the trail cameras that I possibly can in a in a uh, one day window out and start uh, gathering some intel. My goodness, that's going to be a long day. I don't know how many cameras you have total, but <laughs> it takes a while. You I know. know a guy uh, spends an inordinate amount of time just because everything is three and four foot tall right now when right. it comes to harsh weeds and fescue and all those other I'm just branches and what have you. So it's a lot of work. Yeah. We've been doing that, what you just, just described. We've been working on that for uh, quite a while now, last couple of weeks, depending on where we're at and which lease we're on or on the main farm. But it, it takes a while. And then some of them, we do a lot with cell cams, with Reconics, yep. obviously. And, you know, we put them in hibernation over the winter months. So then we take them out of hibernation and we wake them back up in the in the summer months here and try to get them rolling. And it, it takes a little bit, you know, to work all the bugs out. But boy, we've had some pretty nice deer already on camera. So we're kind of excited. Yeah. And, and I was thinking about this the other day. Um, I have, I have files on my computer now, you know, ever since the digital age of SD cards and whatnot, I have files and files and files from years and years of trail camera pictures that I've saved and, and documented and things like that. And it, the, the thought came up of how much time in a given year, I actually am sitting down looking at trail camera pictures Right. And it's just like, I, I think I calculated hours and hours and hours of just looking at trail cam pics. I, I know the feeling. It's an inordinate amount of time. It really is. And it's the difference between some years, it's the difference between 
killing a mature deer and, and yeah. not killing one is by studying, you know, where he's bedding and where he's feeding and what time he walked through there and scrapes and rubs. And we had a deer, we had one particular deer and I, and I won't bore you with this story, but uh, it was rather interesting. We'd hunted him for four or five years and never got him on the ground, you know, and never really saw him, but one time uh, and saw him as we were walking out at lunch one day, he was tending a doe in the middle of the timber on a logging road. And uh, long and short of it, you're talking about the history or the historical value of some of those SD cards. We had a, a guest. We donated a hunt for a, uh, you know, it was for a benefit. And we had a guest that came in and, and bought the hunt. And this benefit money all went to some worthy causes, St. Jude children and, and some other uh, really, really good, worthy causes. But anyway, the guest came in, killed that deer. And this deer, as we started going back in time and looking at pictures, he was 10 and a half years old. And uh, I just had an inordinate amount of pictures of this one particular deer. But as he got older, he would get to a scrape and he'd stand in that scrape that I had cameras on for maybe 45 minutes to an hour. He just didn't move very far. And yeah. uh, it, after we really started studying kind of the history and and some of the lengths of time that he'd stand in a scrape you know he was a really really fat deer looked like he had a big old belly on him and and uh we, we figured out why he didn't move very far <laughs> very often you know he didn't like exercise but the moral of that story the history that you have on those sd cards and all of that information locked away sometimes can be very very helpful when you're yeah. really trying to go back and put the the pieces of the puzzle together right i uh that whether that's short term or long term, I, th I think they they both play an, an, an important role. Whether that's you know the annual patterning or trying to triangulate the positioning. Because this year, I got two, I got no, I got three trail cameras that fired all within a four day window of the buck I eventually killed, and that led me to the right position of where I needed to go in and hang a tree stand. And sure enough, he showed up that night and I put an arrow in him. So that, that short term, uh, Intel is helped me, but you know, it sounds like the, the long term, the, the annual patterning is just as important. Well, oddly enough, and, and I heard you mention triangulation. I don't hear yeah. many other guys talk about that. We do it regularly. Yeah. I mean, we do, we're really, really, uh, very, very meticulous in that triangulation method. Yeah. And when the time is right, it works extremely well. Oh, but yeah. what we have found, that historical data, that oftentimes they're at the exact same spot they were the previous year, the same day, almost the same time, we see that pretty doggone regular on old mature yeah. deer. And it may be two and three years in a row where they're in the same exact spot they were the previous year on the same day. So, it's uh, it, it's a matter of putting all those pieces together and trying to do all you can. But that triangulation method works extremely well uh, if you get a little history with them. Yeah. So let's let's talk about that annual patterning uh, for a second. You guys run lots of trail cameras and, and you get thousands and thousands of pictures throughout tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of pictures yes. and, and and data cumulative over an entire you know, five, six, seven year, 10 year period. Um, what have you guys learned about deer behavior based off of trail camera data? Well, what we have figured out is they're not too indifferent from any other animal or even a human for that matter. They all have certain personalities. They all like certain types of food. Not all of them like corn, not all of them like beans, not all of them like clover. 
Some of them are corn hogs, some are bean hogs, some are clover, some are, you know, biologic uh, winter bulb, sugar beets, radishes. So it, it's, a, it's a matter of studying each individual deer. And a lot of deer never reach, you know, we all want to kill that big 180, but that just don't happen. It's almost unrealistic to a certain extent because I think the average deer would top out in the mid 30s to mid 40s. And, you know, uh, depending on when they hit that that level of maturity. So we look at a lot of pictures, which you just described, and I, I want to say it's to the tune of millions uh, over the course of the time. But uh, patterning one and studying those photos have really, really helped us a lot. And and now the you know, the the cell cam has obviously made that um, has helped that aspect of it as well, because you can determine when they're going to bed. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to come back out that same evening, but it does help you do that triangulation method of which you described. But yeah. we've, we've studied so many. The personalities are different. There are lovers. There are fighters. You know, you often wonder why some of those deer have beautiful racks that never get broken. And then you see those deer that get broken, you know, the first week in September. And you're going, <laughs> doggone it. You know? Yeah. So they each have a different personality. Some of them are bullies and some of them are just kind of docile and very timid. Yeah. So it's uh, it's interesting to see that. And believe it or not, by studying those pictures, we we kind of get an idea which ones will come to decoys, which ones may respond to calling, whether it be grunting or rattling or whatever. And we know which ones are going to turn and go the other direction because they're just a docile animal. They don't want to have anything to do with anybody else. They're loners. Uh, you might see them with a younger year and a half old buck or something that they walk pretty consistently. They oftentimes will let that young buck walk out ahead of them. And they're just uh, not too indifferent from humans. You know, you yep. can put that correlation out there because we're also different. So we've learned that that being able to adjust and adapt and really trying to pick a deer is extremely hard. I mean, you mentioned the deer that you were after that you killed him. That's that's an accomplishment in itself is being yep. able to pick one and hunt him down and actually kill him. Yep. Yep. I was pretty proud of that. Uh, doesn't, it doesn't happen like that every year, but, uh, this year I got lucky and it, and it did. So I want to go, I want to shift here and I want to go as far back as we possibly can. Cause I, I mentioned that I had Mark on recently and he, he talked mm-hmm. about being the baby of the family right down there in small town, Missouri growing up. I want to, you're the oldest one in the family, correct? No, I have actually have two older sisters. Okay. I'm the oldest son, but I have two older sisters. Okay. We have five, there's five of us total. Okay. But you're 10 years older than Mark, correct? That's correct. Okay. Yes. So oldest boy uh, coming out of a family. Um, talk to us a little bit about your introduction into not necessarily hunting per se, but the outdoors in general. Well, it, it was... Uh, one of those deals where we were both self-taught. Number one, our pop was uh, not a hunter whatsoever. He was a construction guy. If you looked up the definition of the big boss man in a dictionary, you'd see our dad pointing <laughs> a finger at you with a big hard hat on, and he had hands or paws like a big old bear. He was he was pretty tough and rough back in the day. So we grew up in a construction environment. With that being said, we were outdoors all the time. I mean, it was 24-7. You were outside. You were rarely in, inside. And, you know, we enjoyed fishing, obviously, with a cane pole and a, and a bobber. Uh, we had a little little pond that we'd go down and fish quite a bit. And Mark, because he was 10 years younger, you know, when I was, we really didn't hang around very much because yeah. I was 
you know, when I was 16, he was six. So yeah. it just didn't, it didn't, from that aspect, we didn't, uh, we didn't run too much together. I ran around with my cousins quite a bit and we just like a lot of guys, we grew up, uh, killing squirrels and rabbits. My grandfather on my mother's side had a farm. So we spent a lot of weekends out there hauling hay and, and working with cattle and whatever it may be. He had a few horses, but we, we shot a lot of squirrels, and a lot of rabbits and, our mother was actually the one that taught us how to clean the first squirrel and the first rabbit because our dad didn't hunt. He was always gone working. Yeah. So with her growing up on a farm, it really um, kind of that farm life is really what got us started. We were always at our grandparents. We were eating, eating, snapping turtles and you name it. They ate everything because they went through those depression years. Yeah. So even the scratchers off a of chicken, they had, you know, we had, you know, soup and this, that and the other all the time, fried chicken. But uh, the scratchers, which is... <laughs> The feed off a chicken, yep. that was in the soup. I mean, they didn't throw anything away. Yeah. You know, and we ate head cheese out of the hog and blood sausage and all those old depression meals. <laughs> uh, that's what we kind of grew up on. So rabbit and squirrel were a mainstay. I mean, that was yeah. part of the, part of the uh, <laughs> really the cuisine, if you will, on a pretty regular basis. And that's really what got me hooked on it was hunting with cousins on my grandparents' farm and shooting rabbits and squirrel, cleaning them and eating them and uh, enjoying them because our grandmother had a certain way of making them taste the flavors and all that jazz that yeah. you just you can't reproduce these days they obviously they use rendered lard back in the day and yep. and just different tricks of the trade so that's kind of what got me started and then i went off to college went through high school then went off to college and mark kind of then grew up and he too was self-taught with another whole group of individuals just some local buddies and what have you so we didn't really hunt together too much until I got out of college and he got out of college and it was kind of a little bit later on. Yeah. It's it's funny you you mention that depression era because I talked with my grandparents and they were both raised in a outhouse, you know, scenario where there was no running water in the house. If you wanted it, you got to go pump it from a well outside. You bring it in if you want a hot bath, you know, there wasn't a lot. This was like around the birth of electricity, that kind of thing. And my grandparents would say things like, well, we didn't even know there was a depression because that was just their life, right? They didn't, they didn't know that the rest of the world was really struggling because not that they, not that they themselves were struggling, but it was, that was just their life, right? They, they, they were on a farm and they worked and they used everything that they, they grew and, and farmed. And, and that was, that was it. It wasn't like it was bad there because they were, they were just used to it you're you're you just hit the nail on the head yeah. and the farm that i'm describing they didn't have uh, uh indoor plumbing they yeah. had an outhouse and they had a, a wood stove they didn't have an electric gas or gas stove or an electric stove it was wood they had to build the fire in the stove every time she got ready to cook fried chicken or yeah. <laughs> like biscuits or gravy or whatever so much the same as what you just described and it and they didn't have air conditioning either oh, and no. it was one of those old houses with the tin roof it was 120 150 <laughs> years old you could see through the walls yeah it was they lived in a pretty tough time they really did my mother that's how she grew up yep and to this day and i don't know if mark addressed this but mom killed three deer last year two with a crossbow she's gonna she's gonna be 90 in september so at, i'm sorry in april this upcoming april she'll be 90 so at age 89 she killed two does with a crossbow and one with a firearm she killed three does last year nice so still got it yeah 
Uh, yeah, and we're going to work our fanny off again this year. I just could not get her on a buck. We had several in front of her, but for one reason or another, we just didn't get one dead. So yeah. I'm going to work 10 times as hard this year. Our goal in life, she just had a knee replacement. Our, my goal in life is to get her uh, harvesting a buck this year. So Awesome. Well, that's yeah. good. That's a good goal to have. Um, but that background, that's that's where it comes from. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the, the hard work, right? I'll, I'll say this from a – from a work ethic from a um, who I admired growing up and who some of the biggest influences in my entire life were, were my grandparents. Watching them work the farm, if you didn't work, you didn't eat, if you didn't get paid type of scenario and how they made it work and how they put every single thing that they had into their their farming and all that stuff and that really stuck with me to today and, and honestly what motivates me to do what i do yes I, the synergies are so are so so similar and that's exact exact yeah. same thing here on our end is is boy you look back and you go how did they do it yeah how did they you know they just scrounged and scrimped and tried to scratch through every little thing and they didn't have a lot of money i mean there was yeah. money was literally almost non-existent back then through that depression era yeah so i I admire them greatly for the work that they did and and uh, just how they got to where they were but yeah it it was a different era and and like i mentioned i talked to one of my construction guys here this morning about what would we do without air conditioning nowadays (laughs) you know i mean we're we're about as soft as soft gets anymore. Yeah. You know, they didn't have AC. They were up in those hot houses, you know, and yep. with the tin roof and it was, you know, 130, 120 degrees up there. You wonder how they ever sleep. Yeah. You know? Yep. That's a fact. But, I can remember one day I came in from uh, helping bale hay and I turned the air conditioner down to 70 and it was on in their house, but it was like 75 or something like that. I'm like, I'm hot. And they're like, don't you ever touch that again? And <laughs> just kind of put a, put that into perspective uh, of, you know, like this is a, this is a luxury what we have right here. Yes. Yeah. And, and you mentioned it, that, that they were conservative to, yep. to the end. All the way. And that's how they tried to save all those nickels and pennies and dimes. My grandmother used bread wrappers. They didn't have Ziplocs. They didn't yep. have plastic bags. She, she used those, you know, the bread wrappers. That's what they used for the plastic bags. And, and remember the old cardboard cartons that you got milk in the bigger cardboard cartons. Oh, I don't know. That, milk that, that was probably even before my time. Okay. Well, she did a lot of canning. I mean, they yep. canned everything. They all yep. had big gardens and they canned everything. So when she froze something in her freezer, they would they would put it in those cardboard cartons. She was extreme. She didn't throw anything away. My I got grandmother you. on my on my dad's side. Uh, I don't know that my grandmother on my mom's side. I don't know that they had a freezer. They, yeah. they might have later, but when we were growing up, I don't think they had one. They had the old original ice box yep. where you had to take a, a chunk of ice and put it in there to keep stuff cold. So yep. it was it was different times back then. So Absolutely. we we truly are we're a softened we're a softened society <laughs> a little bit now. At what age were you when, you know, like going out and hunting and fishing and things is fun, but at some point to the serious guy, it clicks and it says, dude, I want to do this all the time. I don't want to do, I don't want to be a part of a, uh, I don't want to go to the bar. I don't want to be in a softball league. I don't want to do these extracurricular things. I want to hunt and fish and be an outdoorsman. Was there a specific age where that just clicked for you? You know, I think it was more of 
an accomplishment, almost a chess match, if you will. You know, we like to hunt, we like to fish and do all that stuff. But when it came to filming, it was at a whole nother level. Yeah. And we, we went to the Ozark Mountains in uh, Arkansas is where we killed the first turkey on camera. And at the time, I wasn't ate up with turkey hunting like Mark was. He right. was literally ate up with it, but he was a competition turkey caller and he was good at it. And he, he'd won quite a few, you know, uh, contests. So it was a little different for him. I filmed that first hunt and he killed the turkey. So that was kind of really the first nail in the coffin, if you will. But then when we when we filmed a few deer hunts and got those under our belt, boy, oh boy, it was like uh, it was addicting. It yeah. really was. That was a whole nother level. And the camera guys, uh, his level of enthusiasm and the reward that you feel if you're the camera guy and you do a good job and you know you laid it down right. Man, there is no greater feeling than that. I, and I don't know why, but it's almost a bigger accomplishment than the guy that's shooting, meaning you'd sometimes rather be behind the camera than behind the bow, if right. you will. And right. that's really what I think that's really what clicked for us. And we did that kind of concurrently. It, it really was an accomplishment. Right. With you being 10 years older than than Mark and he mentioned that he, you know, like and you said it, too, there wasn't really a. Uh, you didn't really grow up together, but when he turned 18-ish or something like that, I think he said, then you started running together and, and hunting more. Was there ever a a, a mentor-type feeling that you had with him? Like, hey, this is my baby brother. I need to take him under my wing, and I need to show him the ropes? Or, or did he already have the ropes figured out? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a trick question because okay. – I'm sure he he thought he had the ropes pretty well figured out. But we went through <laughs> we we went through some pretty rough times. I mean, there's a a really really fine line about getting along when you hunt together. Yeah. As far as who moved, who spooked the deer, who didn't go to the nth degree, you know, trying to get your clothes scent free and it was oh it's it was there was a lot of years where there was it was knocked down drag out you know we're never ever doing this again kind of stuff gotcha it was uh, those first few years were rugged but we uh we both grew up and it was through evolution really we evolved as hunters number one but as as a team we evolved and then you learn to put your tongue in your cheek and not say anything yeah. And he did it oftentimes. And so did I, you would just let the other guy do his thing. And, and, uh, all you, you, you tried to stick to your job if you will. Yeah. But as far as the mentoring, no, because we were learning it as we went, we kind of learned it together, if you will, particularly with the filming Yeah. and, and back where we came from in our little hometown, it was one of the old, if, it, if it's brown, it's down. If it had a horn, it wasn't walking by. I mean, no right. matter what age it was. You, you and I'm using this loosely, but you were a good hunter. If you killed your deer on opening morning, even if it was a spike or a farcorn, as long as you killed your deer and you got to the check station by seven or seven thirty, you were a pretty good hunter. Gotcha. So that was that was the mystique that we grew up in, even though it was the incorrect way to do it. We uh, that's all we knew. Yeah. But then as the evolution went and we started to evolve as hunters and and really more as as conservationists you know, trying to learn about farms and managing and passing deer and watching, you know, uh, just overall herd health and how important that was as far as growing whitetails. You know, it was just a long evolution of many decades. And, and we really learned that together. 
Yeah. I asked your uh, brother the same question and that is, um, you know, that during that evolution, right, you guys, you guys start going to different States. You spread out from that, that fork horned opening day mentality and you start going after bigger caliber deer. How long did it take you to get comfortable in front of that new caliber of deer to the point where, you know, like you were, you were comfortable during the shot process. You weren't blacking out with buck fever, that kind of stuff. You know, we still get pretty juiced over a deer that we're trying to kill. I will say that with the evolution of cameras and, and uh, still photography, you know, with a lot of the cameras that we have and even video footage for that matter, you kind of got an idea when he comes in. You know, as to who we know every deer on a farm. I don't know that we've ever killed a deer on my farm in the 18 or 19 years that we've owned it, that we didn't know him. They're they're, uh, creatures of habit. And it's pretty easy once you figure out where to put the cameras as to whom they are. So from that aspect, you kind of get past those buck acres, if you call them, or the jitters. But still in all, when we still, I get more juiced up shooting a doe than I do a buck. I don't know why, but I really get, I don't know. I just get really wigged out over it and i don't i don't know that you ever get over that if you ever get past that then there's probably something wrong with you now a lot of guys you know a lot of guys got ice in their veins and they don't fall apart until after they shoot the deer i've I've seen that often particularly a lot of those big buck killers you know the the don kiskies and lee lakoskis and jay gregory's and mark and a lot of those guys don't really get juiced up until after they shoot it so uh, those are the, the, the bigger killers at Tim Wells, you know? Yeah. But yeah. Uh, I, I hope we don't ever lose that. I really don't. I, that's a special part of it is still getting excited when you see that deer. Yeah. If you, like, I, I see maybe not all over the place, but I see groups of people or especially in this world of content that is put out all the time where people are shooting a big buck because it's a big buck and they're, they're, I don't know, the, the excitement level, it just, it doesn't come off as authentic. And for me, when I, when I see something like that, I'm thankful that where I'm at in this world is anytime a deer shows up and I'm in a tree stand, I'm like, Oh, it's game time. What do I do? You know, like I, I get jacked about anything that walks by. And I would agree with that. And and there's a certain thought process you have to go through and yeah. a mindset that you have to get in. You immediately go, okay, where am I going to shoot him at? Yeah. And you start looking forward. Is he going to walk past me? Is he going to turn? Is he going to do this? Is he going to do that? Is he quartering two? Is he broad? Is he quartering away? You know, we go through a multitude of things. And, and I would love sometime, we have not done this, but I think it'd be fun to throw it up there on screen as far as what our thought process is and how many different thoughts we have in a one minute time span. Oh yeah. Because boy, it's rushing. I mean, whenever stuff's coming down, it's a, it's a certain list of protocol, if you will, or criteria that we go through, you know, how old is he? Who is it? You know, is he, is he posturing? Is he, is he relaxed? You know, is that front shoulder forward or is it back? Are you going to be able to tuck it in there? Are you going to, you know, where are you going to hit him at? Yeah. Just so, that consistent or that, that never ending calculation. Yes. Yes. What I have seen that you kind of touched on there. I have seen a lot of ill-advised shots taken, you know, there's, there's uh, a lot of guys that haven't had the opportunity maybe, or haven't killed a lot of deer yet or a lot of big bucks. And, and all of a sudden you see, you know, neck and shoulders and this and that, and it happens. Don't get me wrong. We've all done it all been there. And I'm not trying to say it hasn't happened to me or anybody else because it does. 
you, you know, that's not your intention. Right. But boy, if the deer is coming towards you and, and if you just wait another couple seconds, he's fixing to give you a broadside. And beyond that, he's fixing to give you a quartering away. So, yeah. you know, in lieu of drawing too soon, that's the other thing that, that we used to, we learned the hard way is when they will hang you out to dry. If they're yeah. coming dead at you and you draw your bow and they pick up that motion, they're going to lock up and they're immediately going to look up in the tree at you. And then, and then you have to wait until they either turn and give you a broadside or he just starts to bolt and then he'll, and you can stop him again. Yeah. But man, we see that so often, yeah. so often. Yep. So those are some of the tricks that you learn after you do it a long, long time. And I'm not saying it's right, wrong or indifferent. I'm just saying that, uh, Sometimes a guy, if he's a little more patient, he's going to get the shot that he that he wants. Yeah. So this is this is kind. Of, I'm I'm a little curious on this. All right. So so Drury Outdoors gets rocking and rolling. Okay. You guys you guys get the videos and things going. Um, how did and your only your only boys Matt right? Do you have any other kids or yeah. is it just Matt? I have two daughters. Oh, two. Both are older than Matt. Okay. Uh, Kim, our oldest daughter, was kind of in the graphic design world and was responsible for many of our video covers and catalogs and all that type thing. Gotcha. So she's still still in the design world, graphic design world. And Kelly, our other daughter, is an assistant uh, principal in uh, elementary school. Oh, nice. Okay. So how did your view on hunting or your approach to hunting change once you started having kids? <laughs> my wife said i i left for, on a hunting trip and i never came back <laughs> uh, that was funny <laughs> <laughs> that's that's how she describes that right back when we grew up you know times have changed now where the dads really do play an important part in in being there and you know making sure the kids are ready for school and they get them to school and all that stuff we grew up in a little bit different era right back in the 50s and 60s when the dad went to work and hell he didn't come home and until you know whatever time and dinner was on the table and so it was a little bit different then uh so raising the kids number one i wasn't real sure that i wanted my children in front of the camera to be quite honest because yeah. there's a lot of scrutiny and uh criticisms if you will right and again whether you're right wrong or indifferent we never ever have ever said it's the only way what we just always say is this is what works for us and if it helps someone else that's why we're doing it but there's still scrutiny out there so i never was real certain i wanted my kids in front of the camera uh matt still uh, has learned the hard way he we more or less pushed him out and said here go get it and he's learned the hard way and he's done a great job doing a fantastic job internally there on the administrative side, but even in the field, he's doing a good job. And uh, the girls never really, never really bit on that. They're both, uh, my oldest daughter has two sons that our grandsons are into sports and Kelly, my second daughter, their, their boys are into sports as well. So even that has changed. I think back in the day, there wasn't as many sporting events and tournaments and oh, yeah. travel baseball and all that. These guys really spend a, a lot of time in sports, so they don't have a tremendous amount of time to do anything else, but it never really clicked for me with the kids. Uh, we just kind of did our own thing and we'd go as much as we could. I was working for a construction company back in the, in the day. So getting time off was the hard part was finding the time off, you know, vacation days to be able to go on out of state trips. And we did that. Mark and I hunted, uh, there was a couple of years. I don't know. We hunted 15 or 20 States back when we were really traveling a lot to do the Turkey thing. And uh, deer, we were always 
four, five, six states a year. And then we kind of found out we were chasing our tail, if you will. We were trying to catch the rut in every state, and we'd always either be ahead or behind. And we said, you know what, let's get good at two or three states and instead of trying to hunt 10 or 12. Yeah. Uh, because we were just not effective at hunting 10 or 12. We were better hunting two or three really, really diligently. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm guessing ultimately that led to more time at home, which probably made your wife happy, I'm assuming. No, actually it didn't. Okay. All right. Well, (laughs) I assumed wrong. (laughs) Because our farms, like my farm is four hours from my home. Okay. And and Mark's was the same way back in the day. He's been living in Iowa now for, I don't know, 10 or 15 years. But back when he still had a home in St. Peter's and and his farm was in Iowa, we were both on our farms an inordinate amount of time. Yeah. You know, whether it was fixing fences or gates or hanging tree stands, moving cameras, you know, the gig, food plots, we were there a lot. So it did not convert to more time at home like it should have. (laughs) Yeah. Now, you mentioned something about, you know, not necessarily knowing if you wanted to have your kids in front of the camera. Did you ever give... Uh, like, did you ever give your kids an opportunity to get out in the woods? I mean, that sounds like a dumb question, but did you, did they ever show any interest? Maybe the older two girls, because I know, uh, Matt's in it, like he, he's a hunter now, but did the older two girls ever express any type of interest or did you take them along with you back in the day? You know, uh, yes. In answer to your question, yeah. Kim, the old, our oldest daughter did kill, she killed one turkey. And I think that was as, about as much as to satisfy me and shut me up yeah. more than anything. And Kelly, our second daughter, has never has never pulled the trigger on a firearms. Yeah. And uh, oddly enough, you know, they uh, they all have the opportunity. We you know we've had ample firearms and bows and archery equipment. Now Kelly did try to shoot a bow and tried to harvest a deer with a bow. Uh, but that, that never worked. She was pregnant with child at the time and I had her up in a tree stand and she came to full draw four or five times and we just never got it done. She never released an arrow, but so they, they dabbled in it just enough to figure out they didn't want to do it. Gotcha. <laughs> I think. Yeah. Uh, and and now, that's, but, that's fair. I so, mean, yeah. 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 So, and I didn't want to force it on them. Exactly. You know, I wasn't pushing and, and that type of thing. Yeah. But uh, hunting is a weird thing. You either, either you love it or you don't. And it's hard to instill that in someone, you know, there are hunters and there are gatherers Yeah. and not everybody's a hunter. And we see that, uh, quite, quite frequently, actually, a lot of people love it and would do anything to do it. And other people just don't, don't have an interest in it. Yeah. My wife sounds a lot like one of your daughters. She, <laughs> she gave it a shot. Right. She gave uh, turkey hunting a shot and she there was a five year period where she went out and she's just stone cold killer. Like she she killed five turkeys five years in a row. And then the next uh, the next year I said, hey, we're going to do this again. And she's like, you know what? I think I I think it's run its course. And it it, it went. Uh, she decided that she gave it a shot and it, it wasn't for her. So. So, you know, you give them the opportunity. It's up to them to make the decision. Um, how, how was that different with Matt? Well, you know, his was not force fed, but yeah. because we're in the industry and we're so in depth with it and, and being able to maybe hold conversations with some of these partners that we have because the entire outdoor industry hunts. So 
he kind of fell in. And he, and he always enjoyed it. I, yeah. I really did push him a little too hard when he was little. Uh, he, too, he killed his first buck at age 15 with a bow. And, man, he didn't – he quit hunting then for, I don't know, five, six years, seven years He until he got out of college. He did. He killed one when he was in high school. And then I couldn't get him to hunt again for a long time. Yeah. And then it was once he made his mind up that he wanted to get back into it, then he, he took it upon himself. He's a hell of a shot with archery. He's he's a really, really good – he's not too indifferent from Mark. They're both tremendous archers. Yeah. And uh, he just – it was one of those things where you got to make up your own mind, and he finally did that. and. And he enjoys it. He loves it. His yeah. issue is finding enough time. Yeah. And and that's where it gets back to the family. You know, that module today, the, the dad has a little bit different role than they did back in the day when I grew up. Yep, that's a fact. And I'll, I'll tell you the same thing happened to me, man. I, I started hunting and, you know, following along out in the woods at the 12, 13, 14-year-old mark. And then sports hit. And the social aspect of high school and college hit. And I still dabbled a little bit through that time, but in no way, shape, or form was I a serious hunter. And it took me until I was 26 years old to fall back in love with it again. And that's when I went bananas at the age of 26. So it just took it took me some time to be away from it to realize that I actually loved it. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. And you wonder what it, what it was. What's yeah. the fascination once you hit that certain age, which I don't know that age has as much to do with it as uh, it's a gut instinct. It really yeah. is. Once you, once you're hooked on it and it's funny, you mentioned, you know, your wife that usually when someone gets hooked on Turkey hunting like that, they yeah. don't give it up. Yeah. Typically, you know, there's such a passion and it's like killing a lion. When a, yeah. when a gobbler comes in and he's gobbling and he's right in your face, you, it's like killing a lion. Truly. Right. Right. You know, I think, uh, I think her biggest issue was the four o'clock wake up times, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> She'd still be a turkey hunter if they were going bananas at noon every day. So, uh, <laughs> but, but that doesn't happen. We used to do a lot of articles with some of the outdoor writers and we call it mid morning gobblers. Yeah. We used to do a lot of those. Yeah, absolutely. So as now, same question, right? We talked about your children, have your grandchildren knowing what you do showed any uh, interest or expressed any, you know, conversation to you saying, Hey, grandpa Terry, I want to go out hunting with you. Yes. About half of them. Yeah. The other half are so involved in sports and yeah. traveling and baseball. You know, one of them just got a full ride to a junior college, which was nice because of the amount of time and dedication they have to sports. Yeah. Uh, the other one's a real, really, really good baseball player. I, I got a feeling he'll do well also. But then, then Kelly's children, they, uh, they're they all into it, but they, too, just have a hard time coming up with enough time because of sports. Right. Uh, the year, you know, with COVID, when when all the sporting events got canceled, yeah, I had plenty of hunters because yeah. they were all ready to go. But when sports is on, man, it's it's really tough getting them out there. But they are all interested in answering your question. Absolutely. They they do enjoy it. So and we try to you know get them out there every year i try to get at least one or two of them if i can you know jockey their schedule around just a little bit but they've all they've all uh, dabbled their toe in it just a little bit some more than others yeah i i forgot to ask this question about when you were a young a younger guy uh mark mentioned the the uncles showing a little bit of a a mentor role to him growing up because you were kind of away at that point. You were like married in a way at that point. Did you have any mentors in your youth that kind of, that led you down this path or showed you the ropes? 
You know, we did, and and some of the uncles were very instrumental in that. But we belonged to a hunting club, which consisted of about 640 acres. And then they had some adjoining ground. So I think we were hunting over 1,000 acres back then. But there was maybe 30 or 40 guys hunting this 1,000 acres. So many of those old timers that were in that hunting club were the ones that I grew up respecting and watching and just kind of paying attention to what they were doing and how they did it and how they looked at, at whitetails and how particular they were about cleaning the deer. You know, we, we processed all of them ourselves when at the end of the, the hunting season, we all got together on that Sunday afternoon and, and made sure that everything was spotless and it was all disinfected. And, and man, when they started cleaning deer, there was no dirt, particles of dirt or blood or anything anywhere. So you learn how that respect, I think, more than anything for for the sport and for the game. And a lot of those old timers, and I'm talking old timers, old yeah. old guys that have been around for decades. So I think that was maybe the what I needed as far as trying to mentor uh, and, and just a respect and a courtesy, if you will, for neighbors and fellow hunters. Yeah, yeah. Now, with that said then, that kid – you know, back in the day, your, your 15 year old self or, or, and I know there's, there's, we, we use the word evolution a lot in this conversation because there's, there's big jumps that have been made by a person when they go from 15 to 30 to, you know, you add in becoming a dad, becoming a grandpa, you, you add in Drury outdoors. There's this, this big cocktail of what is Terry Drury's life. What, um, how, how do you differ today than maybe the, the 30-year-old version of yourself or the 20-year-old version of yourself? Boy, the, the knowledge that we have today, and, and much of this is just simply from uh, trial and error and making a lot of mistakes yeah. along the way, but the knowledge that we have today and the technology with camera equipment and what have you has really, really changed the sport of hunting. Yeah, You know, we, we were brown. If it was brown, it was down because you just didn't get to see that many bucks back in the day we got to see a lot of does and and you just didn't see a buck and we were kind of learning as we went we were young so we shot literally shot the first thing that walked by and you know it took shooting 10 12 15 of those in a row before you go you know what i think i'm gonna shoot a two-year-old next year yeah (laughs) it's a a long slow process and uh, you know that kid back then i i was very very patient and i still am to this day i'll sit all day and not think nothing of it but there was a year that, and I remember this very vividly, I sat 10 days in a row from dark till dark, and I never saw a deer. From, for 10 days in a row, from dark till dark, and I never saw a deer. And I was very, very patient, always have been. The difference between Mark and I is he's not very patient. So if it's not happening, he's going to make it happen somewhere else. He's going to move. Yeah. And, and that's the, probably the biggest difference between the two of us. But I still am patient to this day. And I think I learned a lot of that from being patient when I was a, when I was a youngster. Yeah. Uh, but boy, were we green. I sure yeah. boogered and spooked and bumped a lot of deer back when I was 15. You just didn't know. I mean, yeah. walking in with, you know, and you might have had bacon for breakfast and you had <laughs> grease and oil on your shoes. You just filled up with fuel. And I don't know, you know, it, it just so many things that we did wrong back then. And I look back and go, good Lord, how'd you ever kill a deer? Yeah. But don't you think that that, set the foundation for your knowledge base today? 
It did, but because we didn't know, we didn't know any better, number one. Yeah. But we have always been analytical. Mark and I both are extremely analytical and wanting to know, why did we see deer today, but we didn't see any yesterday? Yeah. Or why did we see them this morning and we didn't see them in the evening? Or why did we see them midday and we didn't see them in the morning? Yeah. So that's how that evolution, particularly with DeerCast, our, our app, that's how that all came about. Him and I, when we finally did kind of split up and he went one way and I went another, but we just literally hired cameramen. We thought, you know what? We can double the production if we have two guys filming us. And yeah. that's kind of how we ended up going our separate ways. Not because we wanted to quit hunting with one another, but more that we wanted to double up the, on the production. And yeah. that's when we were comparing notes on a regular basis and go, hey, did you see anything this evening? Yeah, I saw 10 deer. Saw, you know, four four uh, small bucks and six or eight, you know, does. And, and he'd go, dude, nope, never saw a thing. Yeah. Trying to figure out why they moved in one spot and not another. Yeah. And that's when we really started becoming uh, really, really analytical and putting some things together. Yeah. Speaking of anal- like becoming analytical uh, in your, your conversations with Mark, was there ever for you a aha moment where things just clicked or was it more gradual? Well, I truly felt like we started to get pretty good at predicting deer movement way before we launched deer cast. You know, we started killing big deer regularly and consistently. And that's, that was an accomplishment in itself. Part of that is becoming intimate with the farm that you're hunting and just knowing where they're going to be and where they're going to go and where they're feeding and where they're bedding and where your acorns are and where they're white oaks and this, that, and the other. So there was a lot of criteria that went into that, but but still in all, we were extremely analytical long before the app. When we when we finally put it into an app, we had a, a gentleman that was a coder. He was writing the code, but he developed the algorithm. And we had all of these parameters that we wanted in there, you know, barometric pressure and wind speed and departure from average temp and departure, you know, different wind speeds at five to 10 mile an hour, 10 to 15, so on and so forth. And And then all of those changed. Every one of those variables changes throughout the season. It's different in early season than it is in late season. Barometric pressure, for example, whether, you know, mercury's rising or falling, it, the, the margins are different early season than they are for late. Same way with wind speed and wind velocity, wind direction, moon phase, all of those different elements. So we felt like we had it down, but when we put it into an algorithm and then we watched this thing, how it started predicting deer movement, it was like, oh, my God, <laughs> we just hit a home run. Yeah. Because it, it worked. It really did. And we were we were good at it back then before the algorithm because we had it all down on paper. And and him and I were constantly comparing notes for many, many years. And we felt like we were pretty consistent in killing big deer and why they were moving during daylight hours. But when it all went into an algorithm, oh my God, things really changed. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, there's other predictive models out there. And I talked to uh I talked to Matt about this on the Hunting Gear podcast. When you guys are, or let me let me rephrase the question. You guys talked about the this algorithm and how you are putting in the uh, all of this data and outcomes, whether or not it's a good day, poor day, great day to hunt. You know that changes hourly and whatnot. From take take uh, Deercast out of the situation, out of the scenario. Take the algorithm out. From your experience in the woods, what do you feel is the biggest contributing factor to deer movement? And if you want to answer that as a, 
uh, a herd or you can answer it as a mature buck. That's up to you. We, we always kind of look at it from a mature buck standpoint because we're just so tuned in with them. But, you know, I, I've always been a moon guy. They, yeah. they always called me lunatic because I was always infatuated with the moon. Yeah. And I, I still to this day think it has a huge influence on whitetail movement. Some people would disagree with that. And, and I respectfully understand their position, but uh, we can, we've timed it out to where it's just pretty doggone influential. And right. that's what we call it. There's 13 influencers in the, in the algorithm. Uh, with that being said, weather trumps moon, yeah. meaning, you know, fronts and, and cold weather, temperature departure from average, those things that, that get them up on their feet. The need to feed sometimes is, is greater than the need to breed. And depending on what time of the year that is, early season, late season, that that uh, weather and those fronts and all that stuff are really important. Yeah. So, you know, again, moon is important and they, they don't call me lunar tick for nothing because I've always been so infatuated with it. But the weather trumps the moon. And when you get the right weather conditions and you get some colder temps, maybe uh, 10, 15 degrees below average with a northwest wind at, you know, five to seven mile an hour and so on and so forth man oh man it's just hard hard to beat those things so after throwing deer cast away throwing the algorithm away uh i would watch that those weather fronts low pressure system you know coming in with a high pressure right behind it the first south wind after a bunch of norths if you have five or six north winds in a row and then you got a southwest coming and it warms up a little bit they're they're going to be up on their feet from a herd aspect yeah now from a, a a movement killer standpoint if okay let's say you're slotted to go hunt uh, a farm and you see the forecast and you're just like oh geez man this is gonna suck this these sits are gonna suck what what in your opinion is the biggest movement killer boy low pressure is is often really really bad if you get a barometer that's you know 29 point seven or 29.6 29.4 it's an absolute kiss of death it yeah. really is yeah. uh along with warmer warmer than average we look at average temperatures and that's the cool part about deer cast it's it's pulling uh weather data from the state or from the nearest uh weather source that you're living in it isn't all collected from one spot if you're in texas you're getting weather from texas if you're in maine you're getting tex- you're getting weather in maine yeah. so those uh those departure from average if you're 10 degrees cooler 15 degrees cooler than the average temperature that's always a a little bit of a a, you know kind of a movement if it's 10 degrees above average forget it it's just not good you know and 10 degrees above average or 15 20 degrees and low pressure just stay at home you're wasting your time right why burn the spot is the way i look at it you know if it's a good spot you got a big deer wait till the time's right and then go in and kill it don't don't put a bunch of deposit, a bunch of scent around there that you don't want him to know you were even there. Uh, just wait for the right time. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Shifting gears now again. Um, you've hunted for several years. You've, you've got this wealth of knowledge. Uh, you've got a whole company like based off of what you guys have done and you've you've built this legacy uh not only for your last name and your brother and all that have followed you but you yourself when and god forbid this this time comes later than it does sooner 
Terry Drury's gone. What do you want to leave behind as a legacy for yourself and for maybe hunting as a whole? You know, I, I really just, and I've never really thought about it that way, obviously, but I just want people to know that we were trying to help them. We always want to try and help somebody else because we've spent so many hours in a tree where we saw nothing or, or we lost a deer that we hit. You know, if those are the most deflating things on the planet. If you make an errant shot and you don't find the deer of your dreams and we just want to help people, you know, become better hunters. We want to be conservationists first and foremost. You know, I look at Johnny Morris with Bass Pro and Cabela's. He's the ultimate conservationist. I look at Toxie Hayes with Mossy Oak. Those guys are the ultimate with biologic. They're the ultimate uh, conservationists. So we want to kind of spread the word. I want to, we want to give back as much as we can. We've latched on to catch a dream. Uh, and we've tried to do the, the best that we can as far as raising funds for catch a dream and helping someone that's terminally ill. Uh, maybe they have the hunt of their lifetime. They have one, one granted wish or one wish left and, and it's to go hunting. So it's not so much as a legacy, but I wanted people to smile and go, you know what? Those guys did it the right way. They, they weren't in it for egos. The deer are always the star. The way we look at it, we want, we want to put the deer first yeah. and make them the star. The game that we seek, whether it's a mule deer, an antelope, or whatever, an elk. But I never want anybody to say, you know what? They were just in it because they wanted to be you know, in front of a camera. It has yeah. never, ever been about us. It's always been about the deer, and it's always been about helping someone else. So yeah. I want people to go, you know what? They did it the right way. Yeah. Uh, and in today's world, man, I think uh, some of that is lost, right? I, I feel, and this is just my opinion speaking here, that uh, a lot of people are putting the, the the resource, the deer, second, and that's where I get. A, that's where I personally get a little fired up. And uh, so I, I love hearing you you say that because uh, it, at the end of the day, we couldn't be doing what we're doing if we didn't have the natural resource to 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 be part of the show. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And when you look at someone like Johnny Morris or you look at a Toxie Hayes and there are many others, so I'm yeah. not just trying to limit that. There are a lot of them, but my golly, you know, we've, we've been so blessed with those guys that dedicate majority of their lifetime trying to help someone else and do good things and support, you know, the outdoors and, and conservation in general. I mean, we kind of get lost in that in our farms. We're always trying to plant edges and, you know, thicken things up because we, you know, with farming operations today, it's uh, there's not much growth left in some of these farms. You know, fence rows are gone and ditches are cut out and are tiled and all that sort of thing. So, and I get it to, to make a living, they have to do that. But we try to provide more ample habitat for whether it be pheasants, rabbits, squirrels, snakes, coyotes, whatever it is. We, you know, there's we try to improve the habitat so they can kind of go back to the way it was back decades and decades ago. And yeah. and we, that, I think that's the whole thing wraps up in the fact that they go, you know, those guys did it the right way. Our, our affiliation with catch a dream has been the single, maybe the single most important thing we've done. Uh, every shed antler that we pick up, we, we mark, Mark and I both sign it and we say, whether it's from Missouri, Iowa, or Illinois, whichever farm we're on. And then those get donated with a certificate of authenticity. They get donated to Whitetails Unlimited. And then at their banquets, they, they auction those off. And then a big portion of those proceeds go to Catch a Dream to help a terminally ill child take mom, dad, and the other siblings uh, on a hunt. 
And buddy, that's been maybe the most important thing we've done in life. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that, uh, that person who that, well, I don't know. I just, I just look at it from a parent side of things, right? If something, something to, was to ever happen to my children, uh, and they had that, that one dream to go on some kind of hunt that I personally couldn't provide them. I don't know. I, I just think that's, that's pretty cool. Well, we've been on several yeah. and when you go, there's a whole new element to watching these children who are terminally ill yeah. and have been receiving chemotherapy or radiation or whatever it may be. And they're barely strong enough to hold their, their head up off of the, you know, the stock and look through a scope. Yeah. Man, it gives you a whole new meaning for being outdoors and conservation and just trying to help someone else. But if that's their, their wish, yeah. and oftentimes it may be their last wish. So we're really, really committed to that and committed to catch a dream. And Dr. Marty Brunson has been instrumental with that and yeah. uh, his son now. And we just, I don't know, I have to throw it out there because we're so, so passionate about it. And, yeah. and they're again, doing the right thing. Johnny yeah. Morris has, has supported it. He supports so many things. Uh, I cannot, you couldn't list them all, all the things that he's been supporting. And so is Toxie. Those yeah. guys are just second to none. And, and you want the best for those that, that help others. Absolutely. All right, so winding down the the podcast here, and this can be an outdoors-related question if you want it to, or it can just be a little insight into Ch- Terry Drury. Uh, what is something that, you know, you're in front of the camera, your whole life is almost documented. What is something uh, that the general public may not know about you that you could share with us and, and that would make us go, oh, okay, that's cool. You know, mo- most people probably know that Mark and I both were pretty good Cardinal, avid Cardinal baseball fans. Oh, yeah. You know, and have been growing up in the St. Louis area. You can't help but be a Cardinal fan. So we're, we're pretty passionate about Cardinal sports and what have you. And there's always rivalries with different people throughout the United States that hate the Cardinals, but they're big Cubs fans. Or, oh, boy. Or whatever. Yeah. So that's always fun. We love that. I like to sing. You know, I've always... You know, I, I don't know. I run around the house or whatever. I'm always singing. Even when I'm on the farm, I might be singing something. Uh, you know, when you get a little older, you can't sing like you used to. But back <laughs> in the day, I used to sing a lot. Other than that, once in a while, I like to wind down. You know, if I get home and lock myself in my man cave down in a basement, you mentioned you were in your basement. Sometimes that's enjoyable to click the TV on and watch something mindless. Yeah. You know, uh, Andy Griffith or Bonanza or Gunsmoke or <laughs> something, I don't know, where you don't have to think. You just sit there and watch, and I'll, I might be eating a bag of chips or pretzels or something. I don't know. There but, you go. you know, winding down gets gets kind of hard because everything is so well documented nowadays with yeah. Instagram podcasts and uh, Facebook and you name it. I, I don't know. I grew up in a different era where we didn't want nobody to know where we were hunting. Exactly. You know? Exactly. We didn't have our names on our trucks. We still don't, still don't have our names on our, our vehicles. Yeah. Uh, but it, it was just different back then. I mean, everybody was so secretive back in the day about where you were hunting and what deer you saw and what deer you killed and all that jazz. It's yeah. Just a little different nowadays. Do you have a, but I don't know. I'm, when you were talking I, uh, about I, singing, I, did, do you have a go-to karaoke song? You know, I had a, a couple of uh, Brooks and Dunn songs. Yeah. I gotcha. But, uh, yeah, I kind of lost it. I, I don't know. <laughs> I have to really, really be, you know, I, I don't know. Somebody's got to influence me greatly before I do it anymore. But we still, once in a while, we'll still get up and sing once often. I know? gotcha. But Brooks and Dunn, yeah. Gotcha. Uh, 
Alan Jackson. Oh, yeah. I always have liked Alan Jackson. I thought he was about as close to the old throwback country guys as anybody out there, Alan Jackson. You know? Heck yeah. Heck yeah. Well, uh, Terry, man, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to hop on and uh, chat with us a little bit, give us a little insight into yourself. And and uh, so let me be the first to say this upcoming season, man, good luck. Uh, hopefully you, you get accomplished what you want accomplished. And uh, thanks again for coming on the show. Oh, likewise. I hope you kill the biggest deer of your life this year, and I hope everyone is safe. I mean, that's this is something I, I really am adamant about. I had fallen out of a tree a few years ago because of a little lazy and a little lackadaisical. I had my harness on, but I wasn't landed off yet. So I want everybody to be safe. Make sure they, they got those harnesses on. Make sure those safe lines, if you're up off the ground, just make sure that, you, that you're prepared, you know. So, uh, and I want everybody to kill a big deer. I just, I love to see the pictures. I want everybody to send pictures in. I want everybody to check out DeerCast. If they don't have it, give it a, give it a try. Take a look. There's a, a free version. They can look at it and get kind of toy around with it a little bit. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Good luck. Best of luck this upcoming fall. All right, ladies and gentlemen, huge shout out to Terry, man. Love that interview. Huge shout out to Tethered, Wasp, HuntStand, Vortex. Please go out, support the companies that support this podcast. At least go to their website, uh, give it a, a quick look-see, and uh, see if maybe their products fit, fit what you need. Huge shout out to all of you for taking time out of your day. I know time is precious these days. And so when, uh, whether you're multitasking or, or you're really intent in listening to, you know, every word that comes out of my dumb mouth sometimes, please do me a favor, uh, go leave a review. That would be awesome. Follow along on social sportsman's empire, nine finger chronicles. That's where I put out all the content and, uh, man, I really appreciate you guys listening and, and taking time. And then we have the, this, this good vibes thing. I always say good vibes in, good vibes out, but let me give you a little bit of explanation on, on to why I do that. Positive energy just duplicates, right? So if you are the type of person who walks into a room that's negative and sometimes that negative energy can uh, encroach on us and uh, turn us negative, we have to flip that, right? Be the positive force in life. Go into that negative room, go into that negative scenario and you change them from negative to positive. And then what just happens is that snowballs, man. And as we start to snowball positive energy, little by little, it makes the world a better place and we could all use that right now. So uh, good vibes in, good vibes out. And and as uh, Terry Drury says at the end of the podcast, man, we gotta, wear, we gotta wear our safety harnesses, right? Safety first, I love all you guys. I hope, hopefully all of you slay giants this year. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you.